happy day of the fathers. Okay, I got that out of the way. This is not what this message is. I didn't even incorporate it into this message this morning. Um, So I'm not going to pick on you fathers. You can relax now. A lot of times on Father's Day, the message is to sorely encourage fathers to be fathers, right? Or something like that. So we're not going to do that this morning. We're, we're rather going to speak about the Father, our Heavenly Father. And uh, that hymn, this is our Father's world, albeit fallen that it is, is, is all that we know. We don't know, other than outside of Scripture, what that world was before. So we're impressed with a fallen world. We're in awe of the things that we see and the places we go and this thing and that thing, and we're in awe of that, but that was, that's not even the best yet in store for us, and that was not even how it was originally created. So that's, that's a good thing that we have to look forward to. The doctrine of creation is one of the doctrines that we're going to be, over the next 9 to 12 months, um, Mark Foreman, Tobiah, and myself are going to be periodically speaking on those major doctrines. But we started with the doctrine of creation because that is, that... is that not up there? You don't have me? Okay. We started with the doctrine of creation because it is tantamount to everything else. Okay. I'm sorry, but it looks like the signal is too weak. Or maybe not. Maybe it'll connect here. It doesn't like being put on hold between the time that I set it up and it comes back up here. But we picked the doctrine of creation because it is tantamount to, well, it's the starting point, right? How can it see the garage and can't see the sanctuary? I don't know. Forget it. I'm not going to be distracted by that. You'll have to just, uh, I'll have to keep you with me. I'll have to describe the pictures that I had in here, but oh well. Uh, Okay. The doctrine of creation is because our beginning determines our ending. Or another way to say it is where we came from determines where we're going. For those that say that, well, I'm okay with it. I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just a collection of molecules. And when I die, I just become fertilizer for that tree. Well, then what's the meaning in your life? What I, I, that, that, that always, always impressed me as to, well, why would you believe that way? If that's all it is, then what meaning do you get out of life? But, but if you just came, if, if we just crawled out of the pond and we were in the beginning pond scum, and then somehow through these many iterations became what we are today, then, then really what's the point? So, so it is critical. The doctrine of creation is critical to the, to the many doctrines of our faith, and I don't think that any one, any one that we would leave out or get wrong affects the others, so, and we'll see that as we go through that. So I had grabbed some articles off the internet in mainstream publications that kind of set the tone for where we're at in our culture and society when it comes to the concept of creation, biblical creation as we know and understand it here in this church, which would be a young earth, six 24-hour day creation time frame. And I had some things I had grabbed here, like this guy that was a Harvard professor, he wrote this article and it got printed and he was patted on the back. But but the title of his article was, Our Universe Was Made by Aliens in a Lab. 
and then brought here. So there were some aliens somewhere, put some life in a Petri dish, started growing it, came here, dropped it off, and some kind of a universal mandate to watch life progress as some sort of an experiment. And, you know, as if that the joke is on us and, and like the end of a bad movie, the camera pans out and pans out from the earth and through the universe and, and actually what we are is somebody sneezed on the, counter, on the countertop here and that's us in that little multiverse in there. You know what I mean? I mean, that's how people play with those kind of things. And this guy did not, nobody scoffed at him. No, nobody said, dude, <laughs> the door is there, let's not. But I guarantee you that if someone would have written an article about how the unique design of the universe and life on this planet, if they had written that article, they'd be in jeopardy of losing their job. That's where we're at. Or this person that works at a, uh, is a parasitologist and works in a lab and wrote a little piece that says, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. Really? And it was a, it was a technical kind of long, sort of long little article about how this parasite does this and then it mutates and then it does this and it does, and it and this is evidence of evolution and that only makes sense in evolution yet when you talk to someone and say look a tornado ripping through a small town going through the concrete batch plant then the lumber yard then the electrical supply house, then this Home Depot and that plumbing shop. And when it all came down, when it all landed and came down out of the air from that tornado, it built this wonderful, beautiful house. Uh, you, not, not, in your, not in a million tornadoes would that happen. But oh yeah, but it makes sense in here. Or this other article is about Happy the Elephant in the, in the Bronx Zoo in New York. And a group of people that believe that animals are people like us, that this was wrong to keep Happy imprisoned in this small enclosure. She needed a much bigger place because she's a person too. Now, unbelievably, the New York Court of Appeals said, nope, not a person. When I started reading the article, I was sure that they were going to proclaim that, yes, this was a person too. And they didn't. I was shocked. But there are people that believe. Because isn't that congruent with evolution? They're a person, too. That's my great, 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 great grandfather or grandmother or something. Or another article was, newly discovered fossil bird fills in the gap between dinosaurs and the modern flyers. Oh, another gap bridger. Oh, yeah, sure. In the fossil record. Wow, the picture is, like, stunning. It's, like, got feathers all in on and everything. Is that how they found it? No. Just found the skeleton. But this skeleton was different because it wasn't smushed flat. Somehow, it was still in its 3D shape, not a 2D. And so they were all excited about that. And they, they let the artist make it up for him, and, they, and he puts feathers on this bird and everything. You see, people like David Attenborough have made evolution believable. The most recent thing on Apple TV is this... What's the name of that thing? I forget. But the CG the computer animation of the dinosaurs in that is unbelievable. I mean, absolutely unbelievable. It's like you're watching someone filming elephants in Africa last week. It's, it's stunning. It's so good. But all it does is 
it makes your eyes pop out. And that voice of David Attenborough that sounds so authoritative. I mean, it must be almost like the voice of God, right? And, and he can't be wrong. Just listen, look. I had to laugh seriously in this video. T-Rex with his tiny little arms now, they've decided was an aquatic creature. And he could swim. All he needed was his hind legs. And he could swim. Wait. Forty years ago, that was not what T-Rex did. No, that, he couldn't do that. Wait, and someone else just 10 years ago said T-Rex had feathers. I can't keep up. Another article, humans are still evolving. And this guy gives three examples of recent adaptations. That means that we're, you know, slight changes in our genetics means that we're still evolving. I looked all through the article, and I didn't see anywhere where a man had changed into anything other than a man, or a fly had changed into anything other than a fly in any of the experiments. So that's the mainstream media. In any one of those, nobody catches flack or would be drummed out of their job for writing such things or saying such things. But if, on the other hand, you're a creationist and you wrote one of those, wrote something that was along the lines of especially young earth creation, you're done. You are absolutely done. They will come after you with the long, the outcome, the long knives, and you're done. So this is where we are in our society today. Whereas it used to be, you know, you could say those things, you could teach those, you could teach creation in schools. It wasn't that long ago. Really seriously, you younger people, it was not that long ago. It was in my lifetime. If you were in the right place in this country, you would be exposed to creation, God creating man. And not that long ago, almost 90% of the population believed that. That's down to somewhere around 60 or 70% now that believe that there is a God, let alone that he created. So we are an ever-dwindling group of believers, and we are, we are becoming or have become a, a, an insignificant minority almost. Not just a minority, but almost insignificant. And we find ourselves today, if, you, if you're a Bible-believing creationist, young earther, we find you're, you find yourself lumped into this socio-political sector of our culture. And you, and you get lumped in with the anti-science people and the anti-vaxxers and the flat earthers and the homophobes and the climate deniers and the anti-abortionists and fill in the blank. Just simply for believing that the God who created the universe did create the universe. So what we've become, we've actually become a social tumor. And whether we realize it or not, and I'm sure most all of us do, we are being aborted. We, Bible-believing Christians, specifically in the area of creation, young earth creation, are being aborted because they don't want us in the culture. We're an unwanted thing. And that's what they do with unwanted things. You abort them. Okay, so... All of that, that's where our culture is. That's where we fit in this culture. So what's important about the creation doctrine? Well, all doctrine is important and integral to our faith. Doctrines like the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture, the unity of the Godhead, 
sin, which is not a word in many people's vocabulary today, the doctrine of Christ as the Redeemer and our salvation, the need for salvation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. And of those, and those are the doctrines that in the next 9 to 12 months that we're going to be going through. It seems almost within the history of the church, modern history of the church, let's say, creation and the second coming have been the fair-haired stepchild. Because they're kind of like, well, you know, we can kind of, there's room to, well, whatever you want to believe on creation. Well, you know what? The second coming is kind of whatever. And they kind of, the bookends of our faith have kind of been, some people are okay with them being wobbly. But they don't really, people that think that way don't really stop to think that, well, wait, there are ramifications. And there are plenty, plenty of pastors modern pastors that can be pointed to that go soft on creation. And the next thing you know, they're saying crazy things about some of the other doctrines. Like the substitutionary death of Christ. Oh no, well, we don't really, well, I mean, you know, would, would a loving father really kill his son? Those are some of the same people that say, well, Genesis, it's okay. It's just, just leave it over there. Don't make a deal out of that. And the next thing you know, they're saying crazy things. So it, it does. It is important. Each doctrine is tied to the next doctrine, and they all fit together as an integrated part. Why is that? Why is that? It's because God, in the perspicuity of Scripture, making what he wanted to communicate to us clear, he said what he meant, and he meant what he said. A junior higher or less can read this book. Well, maybe a junior higher today. I know that as a five-year-old, I could read this, and I got saved. I knew what this said. Now, I had the help of my parents, but I read this, and I understood at five years old. And if you told me this is God's word, oh, then I believe it. And I could read it, because I read history books. I read every book I could get my hands on. If I believed that, I could believe this. And it was, it was clear to me as a five-year-old. Now, did I understand all these doctrines here? The, you know, No, I didn't understand all those doctrines. But I understood what God was communicating to me. I couldn't write a thesis or, or a dissertation on, on some part of this. But as a five-year-old, I understood this. And that's, that's what this book was written for. And why God has protected it all through the years. Because he wanted to communicate these things to us. And they're all tied together. Now I want you to think for just a minute. If, if God had not, let's just say, if you open your Bibles to Genesis, the fourth chapter. Open your Bibles to Genesis, the fourth chapter. Okay, because this is what we're going to do. We're just going to leave out creation. Okay, we're just going to leave off the first three chapters of the Bible. God just, it wasn't, let's just say that God determined it wasn't important. We don't need to know how we got started. What's the first thing in chapter 4 that we're presented with in the record here? Cain kills Abel. It starts out with murder. What? Okay, well, uh, okay, well, maybe there would be a way to start, maybe a little better start off. Maybe, maybe we could gloss over that, but... But if we don't have 
the first three chapters of the Bible, then as we begin to read through the rest of Genesis, what would be our perception of God and his character? Because, well, Genesis 4.8, and Cain talked to his brother Abel, and he got mad and he killed him. And then in Genesis 6.5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of mankind was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of their hearts was only continually evil. Well, we'd say, well, is God a fallacious God? He, he's not clear about, is he, is this, is it, what, what, start out with murder and, and then, I mean, if he made us, I mean, let's just say we were created, then what, what's going on here with God? Why would he do that? Or in Genesis 6, 6 and 7, if you, if you look at that, so the Lord was sorry that he had made mankind on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And then the Lord said, I'm going to wipe out all mankind whom I'm create, who I have created from the face of the land, mankind and animals and all the crawling things and the birds, for I am sorry that I made them. Well, if that's all we had to go on and we didn't understand what happened in the first three chapters of Genesis, then one would be inclined to say that God is capricious. You don't know what he might do or how he might feel about us, right? Because we're just reading the scripture there and all of a sudden God is saying, wow, he was sorry that he made man. What would you make him for then? I mean, that's being a bit capricious. And then in Genesis 9-2, when they got off the ark... Genesis 9, 2, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every animal of the earth and on every bird of the sky, on everything that crawls on the ground, and on all of the fishes of the sea, they're handed over to you. Well, well why, would, why would God do that? Put the fear, what? Is God mean? He, he, he's in, inhumane? He doesn't like animals? Well, understand here that what the intent of this is that when God says that he was going to put the fear and the terror of man in the animals, it's a very simple thing. God was taking man out of the food chain. You have to understand that. Prior to the flood, and Scripture alludes to the great bloodshed, it wasn't just man killing man. It was, what's that line? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. It was a free-for-all. Men getting chased down by T-Rexes or whatever, getting devoured, saber-toothed tigers, whatever. Man was in the food chain prior to this. And what God is saying is here, now you're not in the food chain because I'm going to put the fear of man in the animals and they're going to have an aversion to you. Not that they won't ever attack you or see you as a McDonald's sausage and egg sandwich or something. It happens. But on the whole, God is saying, I'm going to put the fear of man. You're not in the food chain anymore. You don't have to be worried about becoming a meal for T-Rex. So he's not being, God isn't being mean at all. But if we, if we don't understand that originally how the animals were created, but that intervening time prior to the flood was terrible. And then in the next verse, Genesis 9, 3, every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I have given everything to you as I've given the green plant. Oh, wow, now, now man can kill animals and eat their flesh. And, well, what, but, but I've given you the green plant. You see, if you don't have the reference of the first three chapters, you don't understand what God is doing here. God is not inhumane and he's not mean. 
He is trying to fix what man has done to his creation. The creation account gives us the context of all of earth history and all of human history. It gives us, those first three chapters give us all of that, as well as the right understanding of God's character. So if we don't have those three chapters, and if we don't read those three chapters properly and understand them properly, then we're going to get a lot of things about God and this world wrong. It's bound to. It's just the way it works. The proper understanding of the beginning of all things is necessary for us to properly understand the end of all things. It is, it, is, it is no small thing that God gave us in Genesis the beginnings and then lets us in on the end of all things. That, that's not just some little coincidence. He intended it that way. That was his plan from the beginning. And he intended that here in 2022 we would be able to hold in our hands the very communication of God to man. Everything we need to know to live this life. So, what is the creation doctrine? Well, before we get into just a, um, I think I have like three or four points of what is the creation doctrine, I just want to say what the creation doctrine is not. The creation doctrine is not progressive creationism. It is not progressive creationism. A term and an idea made very um, popular by Hugh Ross and his uh, organization called Reasons to Believe. Some of the guys at ICR, when I worked there, spent more time on the phone or in letters trying to fix what Hugh was doing within the church. And one of the big things with Hugh was that he said, he, he said, nature and the world around us is the 67th book of the Bible. And it is as infallible as this. Well, what does Romans say? Romans says that we we know God by the world around us, even by our own bodies, right? Because it's so complex and how it's created and everything. There's a problem, though. When we look out here at a tree or a bush, that tree or bush does not have God's name written on it. I can't read the biology of that plant, nor can that plant communicate to me anything that this communicates. And the probability of me trying to get some communication from that plant is going to wind up being an error because plants don't talk. But this is very clear and very plain. That is very wrong to put nature and the world around us on, especially when it's a fallen world. It's corrupted. But I have this to help with the corruption here so that I understand properly about God and the world we live in. Progressive creationism is, is really, and, and creationism is not theistic evolutionism, but progressive creationism really is theistic evolution because what he maintains is that, well, that 67th book of the Bible, you cannot ignore all of this geological evidence around us. You cannot ignore the fossil record. Well, who's ignoring you? 
It's young. There are good logical explanations and scenarios for a young earth, and especially when it comes to geology, it speaks of a catastrophic event that is described in this book, within the first 11 chapters of this book. But Hugh says, oh, no, 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 no. They've dated those rocks. The dating method is as reliable as this, he thinks, or would claim. Not true. It's been, it's been shown to not be that way at all. And I don't really care. It doesn't matter. Because when I read this clearly and simply, it speaks to a young earth, not millions and billions of years, because there was a flood. So progressive creationism is not a creation doctrine. Theistic evolution is not a creation doctrine. Even what's been kind of phrased as D-O-C, capital D, small O, capital C, doc. The doctrine of creation as kind of perpetrated by Biologos, which is, Biologos is kind of a response to the Discovery Institute, which is, the Discovery Institute is involved with intelligent design apart from Christianity. It's, it's just, well, this is intelligent design, and there has to be an intelligent designer. We're not going to say who the intelligent designer is, but we're, this is our science, and this is what we're doing. It, it, it speaks of an intelligent designer. But we're not going to make the claim that there's a God. And this biologos says, no, 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 that won't do. I'm fully Christian, and I'm fully on board with everything we see, and that the, that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. And it fits with Scripture. Because the model is, look, we're still, you know, it was a process. God didn't just create in a few days. It's been a process. Because it's like the process of sanctification. So what these guys do is, they, the analogy is that creation is like our sanctification. It's a process. The culmination of it is when we die and we stand in his... No. Where in Scripture does anybody make a reference or an analogy of creation and sanctification. Nowhere. It doesn't hold up. But this guy has a lot of, well, actually, he's a professor at Wheaton College. Need I say more? That old Wheaton College. The year that I went to Moody Bible Institute, Wheaton was anathema. You couldn't even date girls from Wheaton College if you went to Moody. (laughs) Not really. That's not true. I wouldn't know I didn't date any girls there anyway. I was lost in Chicago. I had no idea. What we come down to is man's word versus God's word. Man's perception of what he understands of the world that he looks, like, looks at, and God's telling us, God's word, of how he did it, why he did it, and what happens in the end. And he made that very, very easy for us to understand. And I don't need to do this, but I'm just going to do it. A lot of people just get hung up on this word yom. And that means it can mean a period of time. An, un, an indefinite period of time. Listen, if you read and if you take the time to go through and read the 2,000, I forget how many, If you look in a concordance, the word day appears just in the Old Testament a few thousand times. But if you go and read 
every one of those, you will find that the majority, I mean like 90%, is speaking of a specific day. Like when God told Joshua, Joshua, you're going to do this, and, and you're going to take these, and on that day that you do what I'm telling you to do, I will exalt your name. Now, if you just read that verse, say, well, maybe in Joshua's time. But no, you read further in the text, and it says, and it tells the historical event, Joshua does exactly what God says, and the scripture says, and on that day, a 24-hour period of time, on that day that Joshua obeyed, God exalted him before all of Israel. The most that you get out of the word day as, you know, like in his day, like in the day of George Washington. Well, what would be the day of George Washington? How long would that be? A thousand years? No. How long did George Washington live? It would only be his lifespan. So the day of Washington is no more than a hundred years. George Washington didn't even live that long. And And when you read the scripture, that is exactly, if it doesn't mean an exact 24-hour period of time, but it's talking about in that day, and prophetically, you see, you have a lot of that in, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, in that day, and what they've done to make day be more than a 24-hour period of time, is they say, well, it's prophetic, and it's a day at some period of time, an indefinite period of time. Well, it's not a thousand years. Because when God says he's going to do something, when it starts, it has to start on a day, right? I mean, there has to be a start to it. It has to happen on a day. How else can something happen unless it happens within a 24-hour period of time? That's what some people, that well, no, it can mean a lot of different things. Yeah, but when you get to Genesis and it says the evening and the morning were the first day, those have, it's qualified, God made sure that we would understand that it was a definite 24-hour period of time. Okay, whatever, the earth has slowed down a little bit. It was actually 24 hours and 31 minutes. Big deal. It was a 24-hour day. And when, you, and when you read, the other one that you, they used to say is, when you got into eschatology, was speaking about in the future and the day of the Lord, when he comes again to set up his kingdom. Again, my argument is, that day that that happens is going to happen on a specific day. When Christ returns and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, it isn't going to be, look, a foot. Ten years later, it's there. Twenty years later, it touched the Mount of Olives. That's not how it's going to happen. A thousand years later, finally he touches the Mount No, not at all. It's going to happen within time and space. It has to happen in a given 24-hour period of time. Now, the duration of it, once it starts, that's different. That is different. But if you read the simple text simply, you understand it. You understand what God is saying. You don't get a hold of it and stretch it into... You can't even stretch it into thousands of years, let alone what, what these guys want to take the Scripture and pervert into millions and billions. It can't. Okay, I'll get off that hobby horse. Uh, Stephen Boyd, a PhD, he taught at Master's College in the Bible Department. The first three chapters of Genesis that sometimes have been accused of being um, 
Oh, bedtime stories. Hebrew bedtime stories. Just when their kids said, where did we come from? You know, this is what they, it's just like poetry. It's poetry. It's poetry. So Stephen Boyd said, wait, there's got to be a way. And he's a Hebrew scholar. He said, there's got to be a way. And he has a friend that's a um, statistical analysis. And he got with his friend. He said, hey, I have an idea. Can you help me with this? So he took the verbs, the preterite and the finites of verbs in known historical narratives, like out of Kings and Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah, and the known narratives that we know, this is, a, this is a historical narrative, we know this happened. And then he took the verbs in, like in, say, Proverbs or Psalms and some of the others that, are no, that, that is obviously poetry. And he worked out this statistical formula to figure out the probability of Genesis 1, 1 through 3 being historical narrative. It's a complicated formula, and if you're a statistical analyst, you this. But anyway, <clears throat> he figured out the probability of chapters 1 through 3 being a narrative. Actually, it's Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 of being a historical narrative. And what he came up with, the probability was 0.999942 and 0.999987. Now, if you don't know anything about probability, absolutely positively sure the probability is, is the numeral one. Zero would be improbable. One is most probable. So the probability of that being a narrative, a historical narrative, is 0.999987. It's almost, I mean, it just needs a couple of more way down here to push that into total probability that that is a historical narrative. Oh, and you have to have a confidence level of your formula and what you've done. And that was at 99.5% confidence that that formula was good. Thus, he said, we conclude with statistical certainty that this text is narrative, not poetry. There, okay, we put that to bed, okay? If anybody asks, it's not poetry. It's a historical narrative. And guess who wrote it? Guess who edited it? Guess who put it together? Moses, the same guy who wrote the historical account of taking the people out of Egypt and to the promised land. Or getting stuck in the wilderness. But So Moses obviously knew how to write historical narrative. But Moses also wrote poetry. So he would know. It's not like, oh, the guy didn't know what he was doing. Of course he knew what he was doing. Not only that... The Holy Spirit was constantly looking over his shoulder. I mean, the Word of God did not come in a vacuum. We know that because the Word itself tells us that. Okay, so, one of the first premises of the creation doctrine is that the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, pre-existed. Which is, we, we have to somehow put a you, know, you, you have to put, because these are the words we use in English and when we communicate with each other. They pre-existed. That's actually not a, that's the best word we have to say. But how, what do you call a supreme being that has never had a beginning? Our English word falls short. Because it's not just a matter of them pre-existing. 
Well, they just existed. Yeah, but even that kind of falls short. Because our finite little minds cannot wrap itself around the fact that they had no beginning. Because our finite minds only know a beginning and an end. And that existence that they had prior to creation was outside of space and time. Obviously it was because they created it, right? But they were outside of it. Space, time, and matter has no effect on them. None. They existed. How, how do you... Un- yeah, of course we can't understand that. But you have to begin there because these are powerful, beyond perception, powerful, eternal beings with a plan. Because the other point of creation doctrine is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit created all things according to their plan and their design. They were in harmony. They were in unity with what they were doing. Each had a specific role to play. Genesis 1-2 says, And the earth was formless and desolate and empty and dark and over the... And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. There's the Spirit of God. And then in 126, God said, Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness. Let us, that's the Trinity, let us make man. Now, this points to, and we'll get into this in, in greater detail when we talk about the Trinity. I think actually that's, that's one of my messages I have to do. But the fact that there was, before creation, with the Godhead, there was a loving relationship, there was communication, and there was a discussion about a plan. I mean, they came up with this plan before they even created. That means that their plan had all the contingencies for what could go wrong once they placed man in this world. And every possible iteration of every decision They knew it before they created. Try to fall asleep thinking about that some night. So God said, let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness, and then we're going to give them responsibility to look over the creation. And John 1, 1 through 3 tells us specifically in the New Testament that in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being without him. And then John tells us who him, the word, was. Who was it? Jesus Christ. He was there. But he's here. Wait, John is saying, he was there. He was outside of space and time and matter. It didn't matter to him. He was outside that. He was eternal. Oh, but the word who created all of this, became flesh and dwelt in this crummy, rotten, fallen world. Again, another mind-boggler. The other point of creation doctrine is that all things were spoken into existence out of nothing. Nothing. There was nothing. There, there weren't. It's not like God walked into his workshop of the universe and said, I'll take a little of this and I'll take a little of this and a little of that and I'll mix it up and I'll see if I get man. In the mind of God, in the mind of the triune God, 
when they said, let us create man, the image in their mind was you and me. And when they spoke man, Adam, into existence, he was exactly as envisioned, shall we say, by God. It was exact. I can draw plans and I I can design something and I can go to work and I can build it. And most of the time, it's less than what I had envisioned it being. It doesn't quite work. I have to fiddle with this and fiddle with that. And I kind of envisioned it in my mind, but it just didn't come out the same. Not so with God. When he envisioned a dog, it was a dog. Whoops, five legs. Ah, we'll try again. God never, ever, ever did that. Never. In the fallen world, could there have been a dog that's born with an extra leg? Sure, it happens. It's called genetic mutations. It's not good. It's bad. Out of nothing. Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their lights. Spoke them into existence. Hebrews 11.3, we all know that verse. I think I put that in the bulletin as the memory verse. By faith, we understand that the world has been created by the word of God, so that what is seen has not been made out of the things that are visible. In other words, nobody ever saw what he made. The only reason we see what we see is because he created it. Everything. The elements, everything. Molecules, atoms, everything he created. You see, if you lay in bed at night and you really think about it, It's not that just poof, there's Adam, and poof, here's some fish, and poof, there's some birds, and poof, there's a universe. Because there's an inner verse that is almost as infinite as the universe. Because the more man looks into the cells and the genetics of man, the more they find things that they couldn't see before. And the better their instruments get, the more complex it gets. It doesn't get simple. And it's like, okay, we're down here. Now we poked inside this, and with our new scope, we can see that there's this gel inside. Well, what's the gel? Well, it's this gel. You know, it's kind of like after they sequence the genome. That is junk DNA. We don't even know it is junk. Uh, yeah. Then when some very earnest scientists said, let's do some science, and they went and started looking at that junk DNA, No, 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 no. It's all sequenced. It's all information. It all has a function. See, that's just man. Man just can't get over it, that's all. Also, in the creation doctrine is where we get our original perfection and original sin. Genesis 131, and God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. It was very good. Now, what do you think it means when God says it's very good? Perfect. When I say, ah, that's very good, it'll do. Right? I mean, usually, is that good enough? Yeah, that's fine. That's good enough. We're done. I'm not doing that anymore. When God says it was very good, he means it was perfect. Perfect. Exactly what he wanted to create, he created. No mistakes. Then in Genesis 3, 11 and, 11 and verse 23, God confronts Adam and Eve, and he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And so the consequence, verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent 
him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taking. Taken. Adam, you made a mistake. I got to throw you out of the garden. And guess what you get to do now? You get to toil the very soil that I took you out of. It's fitting. God does have a sense of humor. It's a great irony. And that's the original sin. We have the original perfection. God said it's very good. And then we have the original sin. Now it's very bad because death is introduced. This is also where we get the doctrine of sin and death. It comes from here. If you don't have this, you don't have, you've just gutted that doctrine. The doctrine of sin and death and the need for a, a redeemer. And so he sends them out. That's interesting too in that verse when he sent them out. So God also, we, we gain our original perfection, original sin from, from within the creation doctrine. But there's a picture of God's mercy in verse 24, or maybe it's verse 25. You'll have to look and see. God placed an angel in front of what tree? The tree of what? The tree of life. Why would he do that? He was merciful in doing that because, and he sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, and then he placed an angel to guard it so they couldn't sneak back in. Because what would have happened if either Adam or Eve ate of the tree of life? They would have lived forever. They'd still be alive today. Can you imagine anything worse? Could you imagine any other thing that could be possibly described as hell on earth than to have lived from then till now? That's horrible. Not being able to die. That's horrible. You know how many sons and daughters you would see live and die? How much wickedness you would have to endure and experience? That's hell on earth. But God was merciful. He said, no, no, no. You've got corrupt bodies now. They're going to stay that way. There's a beginning and an end to you now. I'll just guard this tree of life until I send the flood, so to speak. Not really, but... And then also, in the, within the creation doctrine, we also... Part of that creation doctrine is... The, we, we have a reference to the plan for a redeemer. In 3.15, when... God is talking to the serpent, and he says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. It is a reference to the plan that they already had, if this should happen. And it happened, and God was saying, Look, I know what you're trying to do, serpent, Lucifer. Let me just, let me just put the record straight. This is how it is. So we get that from there. There's, within that third chapter, see, if we don't have the first three chapters of Genesis, we're, we're really almost flat out of luck, right? Colossians 1.16, you all know this verse, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether it's thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And then you get to Revelation 4.10 and 11. A day in the future. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and they will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor 
and power. Why? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created by his will. That's how we stay together. That's how we hold together. That's how the universe doesn't come apart. But as per our scripture reading this morning from out of Isaiah, Israel at one time forgot who their creator was. And God, through Isaiah, had to remind them, hey, raise your eyes on high and see who's created these stars. The one, the one that brings out their multitude by number, he calls them all by name. Do you realize that you can't even count all the stars and God has them named? I have a little list of first things I do when I get to heaven. <laughs> well, it's a long list, so it's not the first thing. I want to know the names of the stars. That's fascinating to me. He named the stars. And they're not named, you know, Kim and Nancy and Tyler and Jenny or something. He's got, what kind of name does he have for them? Is it in Hebrew? What is it? Anyway. And through Isaiah, God had to remind them, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to idols. How futile. How futile. For mere man to create out of sticks and stones a little image, and attribute it to it power. What nonsense. What do you think, we, we live in a Marvel universe or DC comic universe? Not at all. Doesn't that sound silly? But all over the world, that's the only hope people have. There's a little, some image made out of sticks and stones that they're hoping on. In Isaiah 45, 18, for this is what the Lord says, he who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it, he established it and did not create it as a waste place, but intended for it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no one else. In other words, what God is saying, when I created, I created completely. I didn't just stick man on a planet that was, hostile, that was a hostile environment. I created man, and I created a perfect environment, a perfect climate. Now, back then, man changed the climate. <laughs> it was man-made climate change. Because when God got done with the flood, it was a different environment. And man brought that on by the fall. But talk about man-made, just an aside, talk about man-made climate change today. They should really be careful. The climate may be changing, but it's because God is messing with it, not man. If it changes, it's because God either allows it or he has directly intervened to change something to set us up for whatever may be coming. So we shouldn't get too far out there on that limb. And as in Romans 1, 18 through 21 we see what happens to a society that forgets who God is, even though it stares them in the face every time they look in the mirror. And that man, when he stands before God, will be without excuse. He will, that no one will be able to stand before God and say, I had no clue there was a God. Wrong. Okay, so not everybody in the world has a mirror, but they can see each other. They will be without excuse. 
they'll be without excuse for not believing there was a God that they had to answer to. But someone has to take them the gospel. And then the subsequent things in Romans 1 is what then a, a society goes through when they do forget the creator, when they deny there's a creator. But here's the thing we have to remember. Jesus himself, the word incarnate, came to earth to win our salvation, to spiritually recreate us, to remake us. And with full assurance and the authority coming from his father, this is Jesus in the here and now, within time, space, and matter. He has a body, it's matter here. He says this, that these words are coming from his father who is outside of time, space, and matter. And Jesus says, heaven and earth will, he doesn't say might, he says will pass away. But what? My words will pass away too? Uh Uh-uh. Will never pass away. That's amazing. Because you know, his words are not just the words that he spoke on earth. Because he was the word that spoke this world into existence. So his word has to endure forever, for all eternity. Because if not, everything comes undone. It's his word. It is him, his word, that created it and still holds it together even when we're in heaven. Did you ever think of that? Whew, blows my mind. So, like I say, all of the doctrines are integrated. You start messing with one, you're going to have some effects over here. It's just like pulling on this, it's going to pull here. This is an integrated communication from God directly to us. It can be trusted. Like I say, I have trusted this book for 62 years. I have never, ever, ever found a problem with it. I have never, ever found it to not be true. But I have certainly found out, disregarding what this has to say, the consequences in my own life. So it's very important that we hold to the creation doctrine and that we do defend it. Because what I think one of the greatest things that it erodes, one of the greatest doctrines that it erodes, is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ and a need for that. A need for Christ to die and a need for us to have a redeemer. Because if you start messing with long ages and all this bunch of stuff, and, the, and like Hugh Ross, that there were hominids and God was messing around trying to get to the perfect Adam and Eve. I don't believe that for a second. That totally obliterates the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary death and, and our need for a redeemer. Because why, why were all of these creatures almost, almost human, dead and dying underneath Adam's feet when he was created and then God said, now, you're, you're it, you really are it and this is now perfect and then we're gonna move on from here. Oh, by the way, if you disobey me, I'm gonna introduce death into this scenario. That's incongruent. There was never death until we broke God's perfect creation. So, beginning to end, we know how we started, we know how it ends. 
Shouldn't that be like enough to make us joyous all the time? Okay, not in every circumstance, because it, it, the daily grind of life does get to us. But it should. The fact that we know where we came from, that we were created by a loving God, and we, Adam and Eve, messed it up, but then in the future will be a great day when it's all made right. And you and I get to experience the fellowship, the perfect fellowship, without these mortal bodies. Our inability with our tongue and our brain to communicate things between each other, that barrier will be gone. We will be able to perfectly communicate with one another. We will be able to perfectly praise God for all eternity. Does that give you goosebumps? Think about that tonight, laying on your bed. There is coming a day. A day. And then a day when we don't count days anymore because they don't matter. Because we're in eternity. We're beyond the time-space continuum. What a day that will be. But in the meantime, we have to occupy and we have to live like agents of the Creator. We have to exemplify the love of the Creator. That's our job. And we have to share the love of the Creator by way of the good news of the gospel. Every day, whenever the opportunity arises. That's our job. That's our job.